0: Taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter eight, verses twenty-seven through chapter nine, verse one. Mark eight, twenty-seven through nine one. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, who do the people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see the power, see the kingdom of God come with power. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and for this word. We thank you so much for Jesus, for his sacrifice, for the depth of his love that we cannot even begin to possibly understand, but also for his call this call to discipleship that he lays upon us, a call that in in and of ourselves we could not answer, but a call that we are enabled to answer through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who moves in us and encourages us to persevere. We ask now, Father, that you would help us to understand your word and to apply it to our lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well this morning we begin, albeit a week late, our Lenten sermon series entitled Christ the King. And you will notice in your bulletin that not only have I provided you an outline for today's sermon, but also an outline of the entire series. Uh, This same outline was also uh, presented in the Lanesville Lantern just recently. And it's our hope that you will use this outline and the subsequent readings as part of your devotional preparation for the celebration of the resurrection of our King on Easter Sunday. As Dan and I have prepared these various sermon series, beginning with the Heart of Darkness in November, we have thoroughly enjoyed working through these texts and laying an intentional roadmap of our preaching journey towards Resurrection Sunday. Each week, as Dan and I meet for our staff meetings, we spend a fair amount of time discussing the text that will be preached. And one of the things that struck me in our discussions and reading through the book of Jonah was this question. What was Jonah's concept of God? He certainly believed in Yahweh, but had a strange way in expressing his belief which got me to thinking about what is our concept of God. Well, the Bible is very clear on who God is. Sometimes our own feelings tend to cloud things a bit. Some of you here this morning may have at one point felt, or perhaps even feel now, that it is impossible for God to love you. Your sins overwhelm you, and you may feel that you do not meet up to God's expectations therefore you wonder how could God possibly love me. And years ago, as a fairly new Christian, I struggled with this thought. I have heard people who are wistfully wanting to confess faith in Christ say to me, I do want to give my life to Jesus, but I first have to clean up my act in order to make myself acceptable to him. Now, Represented in these two mistaken views is a lack of understanding of the grace and the mercy of God. We need to remember that Jesus loves us so much that he accepts us just as we are. But because his love is so great, he will not allow us to remain where he found us. It is he who perfects us through his blood shed on the cross. I've also heard others who confess faith in Christ say to me that they think God owes them for their loyalty. In other words, because they have given up everything to follow Christ and they have undertaken what he has called them to do, they expect that life should be easier than it has been. They may even feel disappointment with God. But this view is also problematic because nowhere does God promise to make our life an easy one. Even in our text this morning, Jesus says to those listening to him, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Taking up the cross implies hardship. It is the cost of discipleship. And then there are those who believe in God and believe that Christ will cover their sins but intentionally disobey and go their own way because that's what they feel they have to do even though it is opposite to what God's called them to do. And this is probably where we would find Jonah. While there's certainly many other concepts of God, I would suspect that all of us to one degree or another have been guilty of thinking some of these things that I've mentioned. So let me ask you this morning, what is your view of God? And and how is that view carried out in the way in which you follow Jesus as his disciple? Our text this morning marks the turning point in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 30, Peter's response to Jesus' question is the first time in the Gospel, other than in the introduction, chapter one, verse one, that Jesus is referred to as the Christ. From this point on, Jesus' ministry begins moving south towards Jerusalem. Already in this chapter, Jesus and his disciples are in the villages around Caesarea Philippi, which is near the border of Lebanon. In chapter 9, they will move on into Galilee. In chapter 10, they enter into Judea near the lower Jordan River. And in the latter part of the chapter and into 11, they head into Jerusalem, where Jesus' sufferings will be accomplished. In the early part of the Gospel, there are many who are questioning who Jesus was, as his true nature was unknown. They were stunned at his abilities, his wisdom, and his knowledge. He was accused by the religious leaders as being Beelzebub. Even the demon's pronouncement of him as Jesus, son of the God Most High, brought nothing but frenzied confusion to those who watched him cast legion into a herd of pigs. And even up to this point, the disciples remained confused as to his true identity. When Jesus in chapter 4 of Mark calms the storm, they say to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The lack of understanding on the part of the people is affirmed with what the disciples tell Jesus, who the people say that he is. These are all simply guesses, but each suggestion indicates that in the eyes of the people, Jesus is nothing more than a messenger from God perhaps a resurrected John the Baptist, or Elijah, or just another prophet. The Jews anticipated the coming of the Messiah, but they expected one who would come and restore the nation of Israel as it had once been under the reign of David. Their concept of the Messiah was far off the mark and was based more in tradition than in the Word of God. Among all the swirling misconceptions as to who Jesus is, Peter's answer slices through the tension and firmly confesses the truth. You are the Christ. The term Christ literally means anointed one. All kings would be anointed with oil upon their ascension to the throne, but in the case of Jesus, he's the king to end all of kings. He is the Lord of lords, the anointed one of God. The king who is going to put everything right, not just in Israel, but everywhere. Upon Peter's confession, Jesus immediately accepts the title, but then begins to tell them things that are absolutely shocking, as Christ, his ministry, his work, is far from anything that any of the disciples would ever have expected. He says to them in verses 31 and 32, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus first says that the Son of Man must suffer. As Jesus begins to explain the requirements of his kingship, instead of referring to himself as the Christ, he uses the term the Son of Man. The term the Son of Man appears 81 times in the Gospel and is always used as a title for the Messiah. In the prophecies of Daniel there is a clear reference to the Son of Man being the divine messianic figure who comes with an entourage of angels to put everything right. The Son of Man is the King of Kings who will conquer the whole earth and judge all the nations. But in this context, the Son of Man receives a deep paradoxical meaning. The man of transcendent glory goes the way of suffering. And his hidden majesty will be revealed only after his rejection by the leaders of Israel and his violent death. Jesus explains in verse 31 that the Son of Man must indeed suffer. And up to this moment, never before had anyone in Israel connected the sufferings, sufferings with the Christ. Now we know there are a number of Old Testament passages, specifically in Isaiah, where the servant of the Lord comes to, and he must suffer. But somehow, their connection with the Messiah had been forgotten until now. For the disciples as well as for the Jews of the day, the idea of the Messiah—that the idea that the Messiah would suffer. Made no sense whatsoever. Now, in the Apocrypha, there is a book entitled the Psalm, Psalms of Solomon, written in earlier, either in the early part of the first or, or latter part of the first, or early part of the second century B.C. Now, remember, the Apocrypha is not the Word of God. All right, it's it's not it's not inspired Scripture, but it's written during the intertestamental period, which gives evidence of what the people were thinking. The Psalms of Solomon include 18 Psalms and in the 17th Psalm the writer expresses a common conception of the Messiah with this plea. And I quote, See Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God. Undergird him with strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from the Gentiles, to trample her destruction, in wisdom and in righteousness to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of the sinners like a potter's jar, to shatter all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy the unlawful nations with a word of his mouth. At his warning, the nations will flee from his presence, and he will condemn sinners by the thoughts of their hearts. Quite a bit different than the gospel, isn't it? In the Jewish mind of the day, the Messiah was to defeat evil and injustice and make everything right. How could this happen through suffering and death? Such a notion was ridiculous. In fact, this is why Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. All of what Peter knew of the Messiah was undone by what Jesus said. The notion that he must suffer and be killed was far too much for him. That word must is very important. The word must modifies and controls the whole sentence. And that means that everything that Jesus says is a necessity. Jesus' humiliation is an obedient suffering and execution of the Father's commission. Jesus must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And he must be resurrected. In Isaiah 52, 13 and 53, 10 through 12, the final triumph of the servant is presented as a triumph over death itself. And this assurance is reflected in Jesus' reference to his own resurrection that will take place three days after his death on the cross. Now, A number of years ago, a student in our junior high youth fellowship asked the question, Why couldn't Jesus have lived a long and perfect life and died of natural causes? Would that not have satisfied the payment due for our sins? I thought it was kind of a sharp question coming from a seventh grader. But the book of Hebrews, of course, tells us that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. As one commentator says, this is not a magical view of blood. Rather, the term blood in the Bible means a life given or taken before its natural end. A life given or taken is the most extreme gift or price that can be paid in this world. Only by giving his life could Jesus have made the greatest possible payment for the debt of sin. His death cost him dearly but that of course was the only way for the debt of our sin to be paid. Innocent and perfect blood had to be shed. Only by the giving of his life as a sacrifice Could Jesus have canceled the debt of sin? Now, there's great irony in the passion of our Lord. The religious leaders of Israel, as well as the Roman government, who should have stood for justice, instead conspired to commit injustice by condemning Jesus to death. The cross reveals that the systems of the world are corrupt, serving themselves rather than the truth. In condemning Jesus, the world, in reality, was condemning itself. Jesus' death demonstrates not only the bankruptcy of the world, but it also reveals the character of God and of his kingdom. When Jesus submitted to death as penalty, he shattered its hold on us. Now, it's interesting that when when Peter rebukes Jesus, his response to Peter is so very strong. Get behind me, Satan and especially coming right after Peter had announced that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus doesn't hold back at all, does he? But Peter has no clue of what is at hand. The sharpness of the rebuke stems from the suggestion of disobedience to the will of God and the frustration of a course of events that would lead to the enthronement of the Son of Man, the achievement of salvation for his elect, and the judgment of the world. And along with this, being what we know of the agony of our Lord in the garden prior to his arrest, Jesus wanted nothing even to suggest another course, lest he be tempted to alter the path set before him. Jesus felt temptation, just as we do, and he wanted nothing to distract him from what lay ahead. In verse 34, as Jesus begins to talk about the cost of discipleship, he speaks to the crowd that was there and not just to the disciples. Now, though we know there are many times in the Gospels where Jesus will take the disciples off by themselves, away from the crowds, and speaks directly to them. But here, everyone is included. And this seems rather sudden or unexpected. But Jesus' call serves as a vital function in the narrative. By calling the crowd, Jesus indicates that the conditions for following him are relevant for all believers, not just the disciples. It was the Lord's intention that those who follow him should not be detached observers of his passion, but men and women who grow in faith and understanding through participation in his sufferings. Only in following the way of the cross is it possible to understand either the necessity of Jesus' humiliation or Jesus himself. Jesus stipulated that those who wish to follow him must be prepared to shift the center of gravity in their lives from a concern for the self to a reckless abandon to the will of God. The central thought in self-denial is a disowning of any claim that may be urged by the self, a sustained willingness to say no to oneself in order to say yes to God. Bearing the cross was not a Jewish metaphor and Jesus' statement must have sounded repugnant to the crowd and the disciples alike. His words were a sober caution that commitment for which he has asked permitted no turning back. The call that Jesus places upon us is the same that was placed upon him. The Apostle Paul poignantly expresses this sentiment sentiment in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, "...your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus." Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who, being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." So here we see that Jesus did not use his position as the Son of God for his own purposes, but willingly submitted to the will of the Father. Willingly, meaning that he became human. He became limited as we are limited. He understood temptation. He understood ridicule. He was persecuted and judged by the very ones whom he created. And he was put to death on a cross. Jesus our attitude, asks us that our attitude would be like him, that we'd be willing to die to ourselves. And this is what it meant to pick up your cross and follow Christ. In verse 35, Jesus goes even further to explain the cost to follow him. Not only does he say, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever who loses his life, for me and for the gospel, will save it. Now the Greek word for life here is suke. And it's, of course, the word that we get our word, psychology. It denotes our identity, our personality, our selfhood, what makes us distinct. As one writer has said, Jesus is not saying I want you to lose your sense of being an individual self. That's the teaching of Eastern philosophy. And if, it, and if he meant that, he would have said something like, you must lose yourself to lose yourself. Jesus is saying, don't build your identity on gaining things in this world. His exact words are, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Now when I became a Christian, very early on I read a book entitled The Shadow of the Almighty by Elizabeth Elliot, which some of you may have read. Uh, the book just stunned me because it's, it's a biography of her husband, Jim Elliott, Who, along with four other missionaries in Ecuador die in 1956 trying to get the gospel to a tribe of Ecuadorians that had never heard of Jesus Christ and these people were known for being very violent and of course uh, their violence uh, was demonstrated against these missionaries who went there to share the truth with them. Now ironically through their death many of these uh, people in this community came to faith in Christ. It was was like a severe mercy. The the death of the missionaries was a catalyst that eventually God used to bring this tribe to Christ. But one of the things that Jim Elliot said that really stuck with me was this. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And when I understood that, what he means is that you can't keep your life. You know, we always say you don't see a hearse with a U-Haul trailer, right? You, you, we just, you just can't keep your life. And in fact, you know, by three generations, we're all going to be forgotten. Nobody's going to know who we were. So he's no fool to give what he cannot keep. Our life, we can't keep it in order to gain what we can't lose, which is our salvation. Why would we want anything else? Why would we want anything else but that? So surrendering to Christ involves a cost, but it's nothing in comparison to what we have found in Jesus. Now as many of you know, I'm serving as the chaplain for the Gloucester Fire Department. It's a volunteer position and I absolutely love it. It's a completely new world for me. Now, I go once a week to headquarters, usually when they're having coffee or at lunchtime, where I can just sit and talk to as many firefighters as I can and it's been a lot of fun. I've especially gotten to know one firefighter whom I like very, very much. He loves his job, he's very good at it, he's highly respected, he has a lot going for him, but I don't think I've ever known anybody who has more angst in his life than this fellow. We've had some long, deep conversations about the faith, some great times of prayer, and while he accepts the existence of God, Sometimes our conversations about Jesus are just too much for him. And I sort of understand this. All of his life he has struggled with acceptance. He gets no acknowledgement from his father for the things that he's accomplished, and this cuts deeply into him. I asked him the other day, how would you measure a successful life? And he immediately answered with this, a house with a two-car garage. This to him represents not only stability, but that he's finally arrived. I am so sorry that he feels this way, but it leads to the question, how do we measure success in our lives? Is it a two-car garage? A successful career? A large family? A prominent reputation and status? Well, knowing each of you, I would think not. But it is a challenge that we live in a culture that determines value on performance and achievement. And we're constantly going up against this view of a successful life. But Jesus tells us that such a view will never work. If we gain the whole world, it will not be bright enough or big enough to cover the stain of inconsequentiality. No matter what gains we make in this world, it's never enough to make sure of who we are. To be accepted by Jesus is not a matter of acknowledging that you are a failure or that you're immoral, so that you now are gonna go to church to become a moral, decent person. Jesus doesn't want us to simply shift from one performance-based identity to another. He wants us to find a whole new way. He asks us to give up the old self, the old identity, and base our lives and our identity in Him and in the Gospel. Now, why does he say, whoever loses his life for me and for the Gospel will save it? Why the Gospel? It is possible, in our way of thinking, to make our faith in Christ another abstract thought. In other words, I understand that I cannot build my identity on the approval of others because that comes and goes. I cannot build my identity on career success. I can't build my identity on romance, children, or family life. I get that. I will build my identity on God. But if that is as far as I take it, then building my life on God is just an act of the will. Faith becomes another abstract thought. The gospel implies action. My knowing it and applying it reflects my understanding of the depth of the love of God. But because it implies action, it means that I'm not keeping my faith to myself, but because of love, I want others to know the love that I have found in Jesus. Therefore, the sharing of the gospel, however that might be, puts us out there. It defines us as a disciple of Christ. To hide our faith is, as verse 38 says, is to be ashamed of Christ. And that will not do. The gospel calls us to action. We can't simply be a quiet Christian. Each of Jesus' successive statements has reinforced the irony of the first part of verse 35. That a man who gains his life through denial of Jesus and the gospel suffers infinite loss. The character of that loss is now defined in verse 38 with reference to final judgment. And there is a dire warning here. The motive for denial of Jesus and his gospel is shame born out of the anxiety of one's life and the basic unwillingness to be made an object of contempt among our peers. Ashamed of past association with the Lord, the decision to seek approval from the world rather than from our Lord exposes Christ himself to contempt. And so our Lord, who's given everything to us, he's given everything to us to do anything else than to surrender all to him, would be anathema. We are so dearly loved. How can we do anything but return that love to our our Lord in complete obedience? Now, when I began the sermon, I asked the question, what is your view of God? And from this text, we see we can't come to the king negotiating for things to be a certain way for us. We have to come and, if you will, lay our sword at the king's feet and say, command me, If we try to negotiate instead and say, I will obey if, then we're not recognizing him as the king on the cross. As one writer says, if he were only a king on a throne, we'd have to submit to him because you have to. But he's a king who went to the cross for you. This means coming to him is not negotiating by saying, Lord, whatever you ask, I will do. Whatever you send, I will accept. When someone gave himself utterly for you, how can you not give yourself utterly to him? Taking up your cross means for you to die to the self, die to control of your own life, die to using Jesus for your own agenda. And then Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 9, there is a great promise linked with these strong words of warning. Those who walk this path will see, even in this life, the power of the kingdom of God realized. Now, what's coming is the transfiguration. And then what's coming will be the resurrection. And after the resurrection will be the coming of the Holy Spirit. But even more so, this verse meant a great deal to the early church because they understood this to mean that even though there was weakness, seeming weakness, in the sense of Jesus dying on the cross, that wasn't going to end that way. There was going to be resurrection. And in that resurrection would be great transformation. And that they knew they would see the power of that resurrection and transformation in the number of people that came to faith in Christ. So they were constantly reminding themselves of this. We're seeing the power of God now being displayed as the world is being turned on its side because of the gospel. The church explodes. So many come to faith in Christ after, after the resurrection. So many come to faith in Christ. And so they see the deep impact that the gospel has on the world, and this thrills them. It thrills them that they get to see that and be a part of it. And the same thing is true for us. We get to see lives transformed. We get to see the power of the risen Christ even today. Not only in our own lives being changed, but seeing the gospel going forth in our relationships with people and seeing people hear it and see it and understand it. And I even pray for this firefighter, you know, that that we've come so far in our conversations. Who knows where it's going to go? But praying that God would turn things around for him to see that his acceptance is, is there. God welcomes him to come just as, he am, just as he is. I want to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis that I think is very fitting. Lewis says, Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our Lord Jesus. And we do pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would somehow use these words to effect a change in our own hearts, a greater earnestness, Lord, to to surrender to you, to depend upon you, to seek after you with all of our heart. And, Father, we want our faith not to be something that's hidden, but something that's evident, so that when people meet us, they truly meet Jesus. And we do pray, Lord, that our character, first and foremost, would reflect Christ. But, Lord, also the words that you give us when the time is right to share that good news. We pray for that as well. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for him coming to the cross for us. And Lord, may we we desire to surrender all to him, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.